Top scientists across the world are putting their best foot forward to produce a vaccine for the COVID-19 as soon as possible. There are more than 90 vaccines for the virus at different stages of development. At least six of these are already being tested for safety in people. What remains to be seen is which of these vaccines will be ready first and which one will be the most effective. I'm your host, Sohail Akram, and you're listening to Beyond the Headlines. In this week's episode, we take a closer look at where we are with the vaccine development and what are the different treatment options that countries are using. COVID-19 is a modern plague that we haven't seen before. It is spreading every day, and the majority of the world's population does not seem to have developed any immunity to the disease so far. But as the world looks to the scientific community for a cure and for answers, there has been one humbling realization. Making vaccines is a slow process. We asked Dr. Jeremy Rossman, a senior lecturer in virology at the University of Kent, when we might have a vaccine. It's unfortunately impossible to give an accurate estimate as to when we will have a vaccine. It's likely to be at least another year from now. It could be easily longer than that, though. But looking at at least a year from now is is very reasonable. It's going to be quite a long process. Now, this is not the full time in which we can say we have a vaccine that works. But this is the amount of time until we have a vaccine that people can start receiving And so that's an important part because we should have some good news about whether or not we have a vaccine that we have confidence in before that time, so within a year. But there's so much manufacturing and distribution and logistics that's required that until we can actually start getting the vaccine to people, it would be over a year. And then until a good majority of any population can be vaccinated, will take an extended period of time after that. For a lot of us, and especially for those who have lost their loved ones to this disease, it could be frustrating to hear that a cure is taking so long. What might seem a really slow process in producing a vaccine is, according to Dr. Jeremy, actually a much faster process than normal. From a scientific standpoint, what we're doing in terms of vaccine development right now is so much faster than has ever occurred for any other disease. And the pace in which vaccines are being created, developed, and testing right now for COVID-19 is so much faster than we've ever done previously. But from a public standpoint, well, we've known about the virus for a long time, so why don't we have a vaccine yet? And the issue is that in order to develop manufacture and distribute a vaccine, there are multiple key components that need to go into this. The first is which we need to make a vaccine candidate. So this is, we have a lot of different techniques. Sometimes this is just killing the virus and then injecting it into people and seeing if that is sufficient to develop an immune response. This is a killed inactivated vaccine. Sometimes you can mutate the virus so that it doesn't really cause disease, but still elicits an immune response. Or sometimes you completely change the virus. Maybe you take just one protein 
or maybe you stick one protein from this virus into another virus that doesn't cause disease in people. So there are a lot of different techniques. And the first step is we need to make that vaccine candidate. And this happened within weeks from the discovery of the virus. The technology right now allowed us to do that so much faster than has ever occurred before. But that's just the first step. After that, you have to really test and evaluate the virus. And so this is both testing to make sure that the vaccine itself is safe, that the vaccine itself doesn't cause any disease, because these are parts of viruses or whole viruses that interact with the immune system. And so there's always the risk that a vaccine will cause an adverse effect that is worse than the disease. So we need to make sure that the vaccines are safe. We also need to make sure that the vaccines are effective, that the vaccines do elicit an immune response and that that immune response is sufficient to protect against infection. Now, you can't just jump in to these experiments with a huge number of people because we don't know if the vaccine is actually safe. So we don't want to put a large number of people at risk. So what you have to do is you have to slowly scale up in clinical trials, testing the vaccine on more and more people to make sure that it's safe and to make sure that it works. And this process just takes some time. No two viruses are the same. And that's why scientists can't rely too much on the past experience. The novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19 is the seventh virus in the family of human coronaviruses. Of these seven types, four cause mild to moderate respiratory infections in people. Two others cause severe respiratory infections that the world has witnessed in the past. The Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS, and the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS. To beat this seventh virus called SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19, scientists are trying different techniques. In April, the first human trial of a vaccine was announced by scientists in Seattle. There's also a human trial taking place in Oxford, UK, with some 800 people. And in the first preclinical trial in animals, Australian scientists have begun injecting ferrets with two potential vaccines. Here's Dr. Andrew Pollard chief investigator on vaccine study and professor of pediatric infection and immunity, University of Oxford. We split our volunteers into two groups, half of whom get the meningitis vaccine and the other half get the new COVID-19 vaccine. And then we wait to see whether anyone develops uh, the coronavirus infection. And if all of the infections were in the group who received the meningitis vaccine, which doesn't have any protection against coronavirus, and there were no cases in the COVID-19 group, that would be a vaccine which um, had 100% protection. In the first week of May, Israeli scientists claimed a significant breakthrough towards a treatment for COVID-19 after isolating a key coronavirus antibody at its main biological research laboratory. But it's not just the vaccines that are seen as the only cure for the disease. A lot of countries have ruled out potential treatment options to help people suffering from COVID-19. One of these techniques that has been in the news recently is stem cell research. We asked Dr. Jeremy about it. This is a sort of emerging area and I am 
So I'll, I'll add the caveat from the beginning that I'm not very familiar with, nor am I very optimistic with the idea of any stem cell treatment being useful in COVID-19. Um, stem cell treatments tend to be very expensive, very specific, and very difficult to implement. So I don't think this is going to be a wide-scale um, useful therapeutic. But in answer to your question, stem cells are simply cells in your body that always have the potential to replicate. A lot of cells in your body, they replicate and then they stop. You know, you, you stop growing at some point in time. All of your cells don't continuously replicate. But if you injure yourself, then you might need to grow some new cells, for instance, to repair that injury. And so you can have stem cells that always have this capacity to replicate if your body needs it. Not all stem cells work in the same way. This is why if you cut off your finger, you can't regrow your finger. But if you cut your skin, you can regrow the skin that you've lost. So there are different types of stem cells and their capacity for renewal is different. But yes, that is the, that is the idea. And you have specific stem cells for specific areas of your body. There is this possibility of using, say, lung stem cells to repair severe lung damage from COVID-19. Um, I mean, that, that could be a hypothetical use of this. But again, in, in severe COVID-19 cases, the, the lungs do repair themselves. It just takes time after the infection. And I think it would be unlikely that the stem cells would be able to combat the disease being caused by COVID-19. Like they might be able to help repair the lung, but not as the lung is currently being damaged because anything that the stem cells renew, the virus would then damage. And, you know, over time, we don't really know how long lasting the lung damage is from COVID-19. We know that patients do recover, but we know that the recovery process is lengthy. So it is possible that stem cells could help the lungs recover better, but the lungs are recovering normally. And so it's, it's unclear how effective or important stem cells would be for this. A team of doctors and researchers in the UAE are working on a new stem cell therapy to treat symptoms. The idea is that those who are suffering from damaged lung tissue because of the COVID-19 will be able to breathe in cells to help kickstart the regeneration process. The team claims their results so far have been promising and could be a key role in helping treat people with COVID-19. A small study of seriously ill patients in the New York hospital reportedly found more than 80% of those treated with stem cell therapy survived, compared to just 12% of patients receiving the standard level of care. But it's important to remember that these studies are small scale and it's just one of many taking place in the world right now. In countries like the UAE, India and many others, doctors are injecting blood plasma from recovered patients into those suffering from COVID-19. Others, like United States, have tried anything from antimalarial drugs like chloroquine to antiviral drugs like remdesivir. Robert Matthews, a visiting professor of science at Aston University in Birmingham, UK, 
explains that we should be hopeful about a vaccine. There is a good chance we'll get an effective vaccine, but it's no, by no means guaranteed. Um, for example, the uh, AIDS uh, virus, HIV, was identified in the early 1980s. Um, that's you know, over 30 years ago now, and there is still no effective vaccine uh, to it. So just because you have a, a viral disease doesn't mean that you are guaranteed to be able to make an effective vaccine against it. That's, that's not a given. Um, I think the consensus is uh, that we should be able to get one with um, coronavirus, with this particular coronavirus, um, but um, we shouldn't uh, be waiting around for it. We should uh, have other approaches for dealing with the pandemic, like antivirals and, of course, all the social uh, uh, measures like social distancing, potentially wearing masks and, and various other uh, um, protective measures, uh, just in case the vaccine doesn't prove as, e as effective or uh, necessarily safe as we'd like it to be. There are antivirals that have been developed to... Um, see off certain viruses and they seem to work pretty well but it's the way that they work to kill the virus that's important so for example there's a there's an antiviral that works very well with i think it's influenza and it works basically by introducing deliberately introducing mistakes into the genetic makeup of the virus um, so that it can't reproduce properly once it breaks into one of our cells now, you think, well, that's fantastic. Let's use that for the current COVID virus. Well, the problem with that is that the COVID-19 virus is what's called an RNA virus. So it mutates a lot. And the peculiarity of coronaviruses in particular is that they have what's called a proofreading mechanism that allows them to spot when they've made mistakes themselves in copying their genetic material. So if you're using an antiviral drug that deliberately introduces mutations into it, that's not going to work necessarily with this coronavirus because it's got a, like a proofreading mechanism that will weed out the mutations that have been deliberately introduced. So that, that won't work. But remdesivir, which is a, a drug, an antiviral, that uh, does show tentative signs of being effective, that works in a fundamentally different way. That interferes with the uh, proteins that are needed for the virus to make copies of itself once it breaks inside uh, healthy cells. And there, there are reasons for believing that that process will work with this particular coronavirus. Both chloroquine and its relative derivative, hydroxychloroquine, may have gained attention, particularly after the US President Donald Trump ordered shiploads of this medicine. But it must be noted that the World Health Organization says there is no definitive evidence that these medicines work in the treatment of COVID-19. But it's not just the United States. The French government told its doctors to prescribe them for patients with COVID-19. India also prescribed its use as a preventive treatment for healthcare workers. The UAE also took a shipment of 5 million pills. Similarly, on the technique of using a recovered person's blood plasma, Robert says it's something that the world has used since the days of Spanish flu in 1918. Well, the idea of, of using uh, extracts from the blood of those people who've recovered 
from uh, infection with a virus is um, is not a new one. Uh, that was actually tried a century ago with um, victims of the original Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-1919. And um, back then, we didn't have antivirals. In fact, um, uh, we didn't actually really know what a virus was. So, you know, the idea, no one knew about um, the genetic role of DNA and RNA and things like that. I mean, it really was primitive. So they, they basically tried a simple form of vaccination, if you like, by thinking, well, there's probably, there will be things in the blood of those who've recovered that probably allows them to see off this, uh, this virus. So it was tried back then during the Spanish flu pandemic and it worked pretty well and and that idea has now been resurrected it's uh, it's being used in the uae as as we speak and uh, it's having uh, considerable success so um you know those are other routes that uh, uh, that might work i don't see this blood transfusion approach being uh, as useful a tool as uh, vaccination because uh, it requires a lot more uh, work and effort uh, uh, to do. And I don't really see it uh, uh, being a success on the same scale. No matter when it comes, whenever we have a working vaccine in hand, then it's up to the big pharma companies and governments. They will have to start producing millions of doses for the world, a Herculean task that involves millions of dollars for manufacturing and distribution. And that begs the questions. Will there be an equal distribution of the vaccine once we have it? Will it reach poorer countries where it's needed the most? And will this vaccine be affordable? Here's Robert again. Eventually, we will come to a stage, hopefully, where uh, these sort of questions about will it be fairly distributed become an issue. Um, I think we'll just have to see. Um, I mean, we've already seen with uh, uh, Gilead, uh, the makers of Remdesivir, the antiviral, that, that you know they are willing to give away uh, over a million doses of that, basically on a you know whoever needs it gets it basis. Whether they'll continue to do that, I don't know. Um, but basically, you know, there are plenty of examples of where the international community has got together to provide uh, vaccination for essentially the entire planet against certain diseases. And that is how, for example, the World Health Organization managed to completely eliminate smallpox through a global vaccination campaign uh, that uh, basically saw off a virus that had wreaked havoc for thousands of years in civilization and we got rid of that uh, uh, over 30 years ago and it's now it now only exists in laboratories so there is precedent for international cooperation on this and hopefully that's what we'll see covid-19 has quickly become the most disruptive pandemic in more than a century it has altered our status quo our work life and travel and our communication are all disrupted by this tiny yet very deadly virus. To get back to a normal life that we know of, the world desperately needs a vaccine. Thanks this week to Dr. Jeremy Rossman, Senior Lecturer in Virology at the University of Kent, and to Robert Matthews, Visiting Professor of Science at Aston University in Birmingham, UK. And thanks also to our foreign editor, James Haynes Young. I've been your host, Sohil Akram, and you have been listening to Beyond the Headlines. 
We were produced this week by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to drop us a review and hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcasting app.